moving forward in our study of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Today, bless you, we will be looking at verses 11 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. If you have it, say amen. If you still turn and say wait. All right. <laughs> Give you a couple seconds. Find it. Galatians chapter 2. We are continuing with uh, where we left off last week, where Paul is defending his apostleship. And the reason that Paul is defending his apostleship is not because. Uh, he is concerned that people are challenging him personally, but as he says, his apostleship basically is the foundation of his message. He says he did not receive his message from man. Uh, he did not receive his apostleship from the apostles. And therefore, his gospel supersedes, uh, I guess, their rank. <laughs> All right because his challenges were trying to challenge his apostleship. So as he defends himself, he's really defending the message that he received from Jesus Christ. And we will pick up in verse 11. In 2010, the movie Clash of the Titans was released. In the movie, Perseus, the son of Zeus, is caught in a war between the gods and is helpless to save his family from Hades, the god of the underworld. With nothing left to lose, Perseus leads a band of warriors on a dangerous quest to prevent Hades from overthrowing his father and the earth. The movie is filled with scenes of these massive gods and warriors locked in conflict over the fate of the earth. Now in the passage before us today, there are no gods or warriors battling for the fate of the earth, but there are two titans, two giants of the faith, two apostles, in conflict for the fate of something that is even greater, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul is recounting the time that Peter visited the Gentile believers in Antioch. <coughs> and because of Peter's freedom in Christ, Peter was free to eat in fellowship with these Gentile believers. Peter gladly fellowshiped and ate with these believers. And yet, when some Jews from Jerusalem arrived, Peter was so fearful of their opinion of him that he broke off fellowship with the Gentile believers for the sole reason that they had not been circumcised and therefore they were considered not saved in the eyes of of this Jerusalem delegation. Now, Paul, sensing Peter's action is putting the truth of the gospel at risk, he confronted Peter publicly so that everyone would understand the severity of this issue. Paul is probably, uh, later on in uh, 1 Timothy is probably where he got this idea of when an elder sins, you rebuke him publicly. Okay. So Paul is, is really practicing what he preached. So he, he rebukes Peter publicly 
So, as he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, so that everyone else would fear. This event is the pretext for Paul's explanation of why we as believers should not depend on the law as the basis of our acceptance before God. I want us to read, <clears throat> starting at verse 11, I'm going to read down to verse 21. It begins, now P when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the, of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us this opportunity to look into your word. Lord Paul, in the book of Galatians, is is speaking very technically about points of the law and of grace and of justification. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to be able to, uh, to sift through all that Paul is saying here. Help us to see, even though the, con the conversation is, is complicated, I pray that you would help us to understand it because on these verses rests our eternal security. I pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to understand uh, this doctrine of justification so that we can rest not in our own good deeds or supposed good deeds, but that we would rest only in the cross of Christ. We thank you now for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before jumping into uh, this passage, we have to understand the issue that uh, these Judaizers are raising. And I know that uh, sometimes these uh, issues are a little technical, but they are important. Now, the question is, are they advocating uh, what we call a strict legalism, or are they advocating for what is called gnomism, or 
as you always say, we don't care. Just give us the answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, now, legalism refers to the idea that we as human beings can actually work our way into a good relationship with God. Legalism simply says that we as human beings can do enough good deeds to please God enough to grant us a relationship with himself. This places our relationship with God on a merit-based system with the belief that human beings are actually good enough to work their way up to God. On the other hand, gnomism refers to the idea that a covenant relationship with God is based solely in the grace of God. So, for example, the nation of Israel, they were in a covenant relationship with God, but they were in that relationship only by God's grace. He delivered them from Egypt. He led them uh, uh, to Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. He made them a nation. So they were only in this relationship by God's grace. But now that they're in this relationship with God, the normal and natural response of faith is to govern your life by God's law. Okay, the Ten Commandments and the other 666 laws in the Old Testament. So you get into this relationship by grace and you live out your gratitude by keeping all of the law. Those are our two options. Now, <clears throat> I want us to really quickly, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. I want you to look, um, I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, because I think that uh, Luke is describing the same situation that Paul is talking about here uh, in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. It reads, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these Jews, they came to Antioch, and they began to teach the Gentiles that unless they are circumcised, they can't be saved. You must do this act in order to be saved. <clears throat> Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, descri describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things to God that God had done with them. Verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Right. So it seems like uh, over the past 50 years, uh, this has been debated a lot. Uh, and so the question is, are they advocating for legalism, whereas these Gentiles had to do their own work in order to be saved, or can they believe in Jesus Christ, but they're obligated to add to their faith, keeping the law. 
Now, I think that there's a lot that can be said in support on both sides. Um, but in my opinion, I think it's really difficult to understand uh, which one is, 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 you know, is the right view with any definite answer. Um, however, I hate to disagree with uh, those, some people who are as great as Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, but I, I don't think that they are correct in saying that these Judaizers are advocating for strict legalism. Again, in Acts chapter 15, it says that some of the Pharisees who believed, these were Pharisees that lived in Jesus' day, that had put their trust in Jesus Christ. They believed, so they had come to Christ by faith, but they also believed in addition to having trust in Jesus, they needed to also be circumcised, follow the dietary laws, keep the Old Testament law. So you have to have both. You have to have Jesus and you have to keep the law. Now, in my opinion, <coughs> I think that this question of whether uh, it's an issue of legalism or nomism, I think it's irrelevant to Paul. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul addresses both issues. And he addresses both issues by saying that both of those viewpoints, both viewpoints, whether it is you think that you are good enough to work your way into a relationship with God, or you think that you have to accept Jesus by faith but still keep the law, both of those viewpoints are antithetical to the gospel. To Paul, working our way up to God or ingratitude, living according to the law as an act of faith, are both poisonous fruit. Both of them... Both of these ideas nullify the grace of God in your life. You are not good enough to work your way up to God. Nothing you do will ever please him. And on the same hand, you will not be able to keep the law as an act of faith to please him after you trust in Jesus. Both of those views nullifies the grace of God. I want you to look back in, uh, still in, back into Galatians chapter 2. We've all heard uh, this phrase, actions speak louder than words, right? I've heard that phrase on a number of occasions myself. Oftentimes, it is used in the context of a relationship where you say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but, but your actions <laughs> speak louder than your words. When we use this phrase, actions speak louder than your words, what we are really saying is that the person who is, is, is speaking, they are doing something with their lifestyle that contradicts what they have said. They're doing something with their lifestyle that contradicts what they have said. Their behavior is somehow in conflict with the things that they are saying. And this is exactly what Peter is doing in Antioch. Peter fully believed and taught that salvation was by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He would have also fully believed and taught that we as Christians have freedom in Christ, that we are free from the law, and that no one, Jew or Gentile, is unclean. Because remember in Acts chapter 10, Jesus gave him this vision, and he saw clean animals and unclean animals, and Jesus said, slay and eat. Right, you remember that? And he says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus says to him, that which I have cleansed, you don't call unclean. And then he sends them on to Cornelius' house to share the gospel. And so he understands that even Gentiles now are not unclean. And he is free to fellowship with them. However, his actions were speaking louder than his words. <clears throat> and when these Jews uh, arrived in Antioch, Peter was having fun. <laughs> he was fellowshipping with these Gentiles. He's probably even having a ham sandwich now and then. He, he was in enjoying himself. He was not following the law at all. But then the sanctified folks showed up. And this, uh, that is happening to all of us, right? <laughs> and, and, and Peter became so afraid of their opinion of him. You're an apostle and you're, you're eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. Peter was so afraid of their opinion that he stopped eating with them. He even moved to a different table, started eating only with these Jews from Jerusalem. And everything that he would have taught about faith in Christ, trusting in Jesus' work alone, Jesus' death on the cross, our freedom in Christ, all of that was thrown out of the window because people started looking at what he did rather than what he was saying. And it became such a big issue that Barnabas, Paul's mentor, the one who discipled him, he started changing. And people started following Peter. And Paul, recognizing that pa Peter is going to undermine every single thing they had taught, he confronted him to his face. His actions were speaking louder than words. Now, I could stop for a moment and, <clears throat> and talk about how uh, the Bible says that the fear of man brings a snare. And, that, and it, this happens to all of us, right? And, and, and sometimes uh, we know things to be right, but because certain people are around, we do the wrong things. We're too concerned about how people are going to view us. What are they going to think about us? Paul here is, is, is really not concerned about what people will think. Our responsibility is not supposed to be focused on managing others' expectations of us. It is not supposed to center around managing what other people think about us. Our obligation is to walk straight on the truth. This is what it says, Paul says that when he saw that they were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel, 
the idea of this word straightforward is, is walking on a straight path. Peter, you're walking crooked when it comes to the truth. Our responsibility is to stand on the truth, regardless of what other people will think of us. Because what is at stake is the truth of the gospel. And Peter, by his actions, was undermining the truth of the gospel. <coughs> now, again, I wanted to put a caveat here, just like I did last week. Um, uh, for those of, of us who struggle with understanding the connection, right, because um, I, I know, bless you, no one, uh, I hope no one, was asked when they said they wanted to put their trust in Jesus, no one was asked to be circumcised, was he? I, I, I didn't think so. <laughs> but what you can do, again, as I said last week, is simply replace uh, circumcision with anything that we say, you know, currently in use today. Okay. Um, I told you how when I went to Morgan, uh, I was uh, meeting with, um, uh, I met with this, this guy who's a Christian from a, a, another church, different denomination, and, and uh, we were talking about our faith in Christ, and, and he said, well, have you been, when you were baptized, did you speak in tongues when you came out of the water? No, I, I just went down dry and came up wet. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, you, you really aren't saved then. <laughs> because in, in order to be saved, when you get baptized, you have to come out the water speaking in tongues. So all you got to do is come to my church, and we'll baptize you the right way, and you'll be speaking in tongues. And it, Excuse me, sir, let me stop you for a moment. You, have you ever read the book of Galatians? <laughs> Christ plus anything nullifies the grace of God. <laughs> and if you got the gift of tongues, go ahead and speak it. It's not going to get you into heaven, though. <laughs> it's not going to get you into heaven. Only Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice can do that. Some people... Even uh, I have some friends who believe that if you put your trust in Jesus, but you don't get baptized, you will still go to hell. Now, I believe every single, as a Baptist, as a Baptist, (laughs) as a Baptist, I believe that every single person who puts their trust in Jesus should definitely be baptized. Okay, I would not be a good Baptist if I did not believe that. But to say you can trust in Jesus and still go to hell if you don't get baptized is wrong. Because then your faith in Jesus means nothing. It's the baptism that saves you. I have some friends who, who say, we talked about this last week, that, 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 that say that when you get saved, you put your trust in Jesus, you don't receive the Holy Spirit. But at, at a subsequent time in your life, you must tarry for the Holy Ghost. You got to fast and pray and plead with God to get the Spirit. And then one day he'll give you his Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Ephesians chapter 1. When you believe, 
He seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter 4, you will be sealed until the day of redemption, which is when you make, make it home. Paul says in, in Romans, if you do not have the Spirit, you are not one of his. So if you put your trust in Jesus, but don't get the Spirit, you don't belong to him. <laughs> All of these things, and I, un- and I understand that, that a lot of uh, these things are somewhat denominational and different, different um, denominations teach different things on these things. But my, my responsibility is not to a denomination. It is to the word of God. And if you add anything to your trust in Christ as the foundation for your salvation, in essence, you are subtracting Christ. Anything that you must do in addition to believing in Jesus in order to receive, keep, or enhance your salvation can be swapped out for the word circumcision. So if you're confused because of Paul's use of circumcision, just swap out anything you hear people saying you have to do plus Jesus in order to be saved. Now Paul's issue with Peter is hypocrisy. That's his issue. He says of Peter in verse uh, uh <coughs> In uh, verse 14, he says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile, why are you compelling the Jews, I mean the Gentiles, to live like a Jew? You over here eating ham sandwiches and then telling the Gentiles they need to get circumcised and keep the dietary laws that say they can't eat ham sandwiches. Peter, you're being a hypocrite. And this was not Peter's uh, issue alone because Peter was living out his freedom in Christ, just like the Gentiles. But he became a hypocrite because he was concerned about what other people think. And again, like I said, this is not Peter's issue alone. This is something, bless you, this is something that the Jews wrestled with, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. I want you to, to see this. This is the issue that the Jews struggled with. Romans chapter 2. This was a rampant problem for the Jewish nation. Is that one there? I was going to start at chapter 2, verse 1. But I want you to move up to verse 26 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. Go back to chapter 1, verse 26. And I'll just read straight through chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a debased mind and to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Listen. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So you, you, you know the right thing, but you do it anyway. Therefore, verse 1, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, who you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? I'm just skip over to verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and light to those who are in darkness and an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. You see, the people who know the law are usually the biggest hypocrites. The people in church who knows the most are usually the biggest hypocrites. Because we have all of this knowledge and information, and usually we aren't living up to any of it. We pretend to be smart, and we raise our hand. We got all the answers in Bible study. But are you living out what you know? You're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in darkness. You are an instructor for babes and fools. But are you stealing and committing adultery and robbing temples? Because the Gentiles are blaspheming God's name because of your hypocrisy. That's why they don't want to come to church. I'm not going to church. There's a bunch of hip hypocrites up in there. Peter was being a hypocrite. And before we start pointing fingers at Peter, we should take a look at ourselves.
anyone who desires to keep the law, anyone who desires to keep the law, whether that is in order to get saved or to demonstrate their gratitude to God after they get saved, anyone who desires to keep the law will inevitably be a hypocrite. Every single one. You will be like the Pharisees. You will say one thing and do another. Now, Paul goes on to say that the reason that Peter is Paul, um, that Peter is Paul, that Peter is wrong <laughs> to force the law on Gentiles is because Peter already understands and acknowledges that as a Jew himself, he needed Christ. Now, think about this. Now, Paul here in this, in this passage he gives us only two ways to be justified in Christ. Um, just to be justified, I'm sorry. He gives us two ways in order to be justified. Verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So you're either justified by works of the law, or you're justified by Jesus Christ. Now let's think about this for a moment, because Peter and Paul and the Jews already had the works of the law. Think about it. Before Jesus was born and was crucified, they already were fulfilling the works of the law. They were already circumcised and following the dietary laws, keeping the feast and all of the things that were taking place in the old, um, um, given to them in the Old Testament. They were already keeping the law, and yet they did not have a saving relationship with God. They still needed a savior. They still needed Jesus. They still needed him to die on behalf of their sins. And Peter already recognized this. He says that knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. We meaning Peter and Paul. Paul, I mean, Peter recognized the fact that even in keeping the law, he could not do it perfectly, so he needed Jesus Christ to pay for his sins. Works of law versus faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and these two things are antithetical. They are mutually exclusive. You will either be justified by your own works or you will be justified by Jesus Christ. You cannot put these two things together. They're like oil and water. They won't mix. They won't mix. The law was profiting them nothing. Keeping the law could not and did not place them in a right relationship with God. And our own works will never be greater than our own sin. And this is what we don't we don't get. I was talking to someone last night at a party I was I attended and she was uh, saying that she was Catholic. And um, I think almost everybody that was Catholic except me. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we, we were just having just a, a regular conversation. She was talking about her family and, and she had had a heart attack a year ago. And and um, and uh, she was like, this, it was so scary. And I, I just started thinking about um, you know, I just want to get in. So I got to 
I got to do all of the, the right things to make sure I get in. And, you know, it's Lenten season. And I'm like, I'm not a good person because I don't feel like getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to Mass every day for 40 days. You know, she's like, but my priest said, as long as we just sacrifice something, even if it's just stop eating chocolate. And I'm just listening. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it, it just struck me. I'm like, hmm, okay, so adultery, fornication, idolatry, disobey parents. And God will be so happy <laughs> that if I just stop eating chocolate for 40 days, he'll let me into heaven. If, if, I just, if I just stop eating chocolate for 40 days, God will be like, whew, like I'm going to let them into heaven. I'm just so excited. Now, we laugh at that. But isn't that what we do when we try to give enough money to church? Like, oh, I really need God to do something for me. So we start tithing. I really need God to answer my prayer. So we just start reading our Bible every day. We haven't read it in, read it in like six months. But it's like, oh, I need a breakthrough. I need a blessing. And so we, so we just pray and we fast and we come to church. We actually come to church. We're thinking that if we do something good, we throw God a token, that's going to make him so happy that he's going to be favorably disposed towards us. That's works of law. <laughs> what we don't realize, helping old ladies across the street, giving all of our money to the poor, doing all of these things, your good deeds will never outweigh your sin. They just won't. And just like this lady, she's just, you know, they, they're banking on that if, if I get there and I have like 51 to 49, I'm getting in. <laughs> and the truth is, it's always going to be zero one hundred. So I just simply said to her, all we can do is rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's all that counts to God anyway. <laughs> That's all that counts. Our own good works will never be greater than our own sin. The only thing that will justify us, that is, the only thing that will put us in a right relationship with God, is placing our trust in Jesus and his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Legalism, meaning that you're trying to work your way into pleasing God, into a right relationship with God, is a dead end. You will get to the end of that road, and it will be a literal dead end. And by dead, I mean hell. Now, if legalism is a dead end, maybe gnomism is a good idea. Maybe I can put my trust in Jesus, but then I can, in gratitude, I can try to follow the law to please God. Maybe that's a better option. 
Let's see what Paul thinks about that. <laughs> Listen to what he says in verse 17. He says, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Excuse me. This question must be asked and answered. And this is the question. If we only need Christ and not the law in order to have a good relationship with God, when a Christian uses his or her freedom in Christ to sin, doesn't that make Christ a servant of sin, since Christ is the one who removed the law? And that's my long question on Paul's short question. If all we need is Christ and we don't need the law, because remember, the law restrains our sin. When it says, thou shalt not, right, it lets me know that this is wrong, so I'm going to stop doing it. But if, as Paul says, and, if, and as I believe, we no longer need the law, we have freedom in Christ. When a Christian uses that freedom in Christ to sin, isn't Jesus, because he removed the law, isn't he encouraging or promoting or giving us an opportunity to sin? This is the question of the Judaizers. If you say that Christians don't have to keep the law, that means we can do as we please. We don't have to sin, what we call antinomianism. It's against the law. We can live against the law. We can live in sin. Paul declares the answer to be no. But the reason he says the answer is no is because, first, Christ can never be to blame for our sin. That's on us. But the reason that Paul is giving for us not relying on the law as the way to restrain us from sin is because Paul's understanding of the law is different from our understanding of the law. We think that the law was designed in order to make us better. And the way we do that is we don't follow the Ten Commandments. This is what we normally do. This is how we tell whether or not we are growing as Christians. When someone says, how, did you, how do you know that you are mature in Christ? This is what we do. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't go to the club anymore. <laughs> right? I used to do this, but I don't do that no more. Right. We, we, we start ticking off a list of rules. I remember I got kicked out of this church one time. <laughs> I, I was invited to, to 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 do a like a, a like they were having like a conference at their church. Where several churches came together and and um, and and the topic that they asked me to preach. I mean, the teacher one was on Christian liberty, Christian freedom. And so going through this. I, I do this segment. I think we had gotten to a question and answer period. And and um, I don't know if it was if it was one of the pastors or if it was a, a member, but somehow the question came up um, about movies, about what kind of movies should we as Christians go see. 
And, you know, being young, I looking back, I was like, I could have, I could have phrased this differently. But um, the person, the, basically, um, after this back and forth conversation my, the, the, that members were having, one of the pastors said, well, I tell my, my, uh, the members of my church that they can't go to see movies. And the, and, the, and the reason he gave was very telling. He said, I tell them that they can't go to the see movies unless I approve the movies because they aren't mature enough to make those kind of decisions for themselves. They don't know what's right and wrong. Now, me being uh, probably about 21 at this time, you know, I'm, I was kind of off, you know, when I was, was younger. I said, are you the Holy Spirit? I'm just, yeah, that's when I got, I, that's when I got kicked out, you know. <laughs> now I'm dead serious. I'm, I'm not joking at all. They, you know, as soon as that segment end, ended, they came up and was like, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to cut it for the day, and, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to go. I'm like, oh, we got two more segments. No, we're just going <laughs> to wrap it up and, and go home. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, are you, that's the question, though. Are, are you the Holy Spirit? Because, oh, no, he, he didn't answer. You know, no, I'm going to keep that to myself. That's really the question. Are, are you the Holy Spirit? Uh, am I as your pastor supposed to say, now, you can't watch this, 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 this because you're spiritually immature? Because the idea is that, well, if you don't watch these types of movies, then you are spiritually mature. And all I'm saying is that half the commercials on TV are softcore porn. So if you say, don't watch movies so that you don't see pornography, but you still watch commercials, you're still getting it, right? Because if, 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 if I have problems with lust, I ain't got to watch a completely naked person to fulfill that need. All I can see is the, the women brushing their teeth. I don't know why everybody brushed their teeth in their underwear, but, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know about nobody else, but, <laughs> but <laughs> and, and if I got a problem with lust, I'm, be watching t I'm just be watching commercials be like, ooh, I like that commercial. But because I didn't go to the movies, I'm a mature Christian. I had a friend of mine who, I mean, they vehemently debated me and said, Christians cannot drink wine. <laughs> they can't drink alcohol at all. And I, I say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought Jesus' first miracle was <laughs> turning water into wine. That wasn't real wine. That was he like that was that was fermented grape juice. <laughs> I'm just okay. I'm I, I I thought wine was fermented grape juice, but you know I just I'm just confused. I don't know. I I don't. I mean, that was grape juice. And I'm just like I don't know. <laughs> but 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 I but I do know that most of the people I know who say Christians can't drink wine, they they should drink wine and stop the other stuff they doing. 
I'm just saying that because I just be I just be wondering that. How are you so adamant about keeping these lists of rules? But you're blatantly living in sin. It's because keeping rules won't make us right with God. Keeping rules won't make us right with God. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep rules and we should live in sin. We're going to get to that in chapter 5. But what I'm trying to get us to see is that Christ is not to blame when we sin. We are to blame when we sin. And more than that, what we have to realize is that it is the law that does not make us spiritually mature. The law is what actually promotes our sin. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. It's the law that actually promotes our sin. The law is the source of our conflict with God. And Paul is saying that if he rebuilds or resurrects this principle of keeping the law in order to please God, he is necessarily working on increasing sin in his life. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read through this quickly. I'm going to start at verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Now, all of us have experienced this. You were growing up, and your mother went food shopping, and she put everything away, and she said, don't you touch those cookies in the pantry. And immediately, your mom said, we got cookies in the pantry? <laughs> you... You were not thinking it. You saw her bring the cookies in. She put the cookies away. You weren't thinking about those cookies. But when she said, don't touch those cookies in the pantry, something inside of you said, I want a cookie. <laughs> and, and if you were like me, Brandy, and Kelly, <laughs> we were slick. We knew which steps on that would creak. And we were, we were on the banister like, <laughs> going down the steps at night getting everything <laughs> wait Kelly Kelly she trying to hide <laughs> the law is what arouses your passions another example how many people there was this one person you like, I ain't think about that person. I don't want to date that person, but we just friends, we cool. And then your parents said, you can't date that person. 
I wasn't thinking about dating that person, but I'm going, we sneaking out the house, we hanging out. Why? Not because I'm really interested in this person, but only because my parents said, you can't date that person. Same thing with the law. When the law says, thou shalt not, you say, why not? Why not? Why can't I? I mean, what's wrong with, th- what's wrong with that? You know? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I wasn't thinking about my neighbor wife, but now you say she is real cute. (laughs) The law arouses your desire. He says, but when we were in the flesh, the simple passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is there something wrong with the law? No, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except for the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Okay, so the law is good. It lets me know what God does not like. However, verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. The law produced in me evil desires. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It wasn't bothering me. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the law is fine. There's nothing wrong with, with the law. The law is a reflection of God's nature and his character. The law is fine. Something's wrong with you. (laughs) So when the law says don't do something, your sinful nature wants to know why. Why I can't do that? And then that makes you want to do it even more. Then we got to justify why we do it. 
So Paul is saying that if I rebuild these things, these principles of keeping the law in my life, I'm going to become a transgressor. I'm going to sin even more because when, when he says don't, 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 I can't perfectly keep what he says. And so therefore the law is the source of my conflict with God. Because when God says don't and I do, God being just, he has to punish me. So if you want to follow the law in order to please God, as we'll see in chapter 3, you're asking to be cursed. You're asking to be cursed. Um, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul again alludes to the fact that the law will kill you. Because we cannot perfectly keep the law due to the weakness of our flesh, we must receive the penalty of the law, which, according to Romans, 3, 20, Romans 6, 23, is death. Bless you. But in Christ, we have actually died to the law. The law's death penalty has been applied to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. So with respect to the law, we are dead. It is no more, uh, it has no more power over us, not to control us, not to kill us, not to condemn us. We are free. I want you to see that as I close. I'm going to end here and we'll pick back up in, in uh, verse 20 uh, next week. But listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild again those things which I destroyed, bless you, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Again, Paul's understanding of the law is different from our understanding. Paul, when they asked him, how does he know he's spiritually mature? He would not tick off a list of, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do these, <laughs> this. Because the natural question becomes, well, what do you do? Because all of us do something. Right? I like messing with people. I do. And when, when, people say, when people start to, well, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that, I always come back, well, what do you do? That's when they usually get smart with me and walk away. <laughs> right? Be, but, but that's the natural question. If your spiritual maturity is based off of what you do not do, right? then we have to ask, well, what do you do? Because you, there's only one person in my entire life and that, that I can think of, and that was within this last month, that I asked that question, and they came back with, I don't sin. I'm like, I, I said, well, let me, let, me, let me ask you a couple more questions. I'm like, you don't sin? Yeah, I don't, I don't even remember the last time I sinned. I, I, I don't sin. I, I said, you, you believe that Christians... Can become perfect and never sin again? Absolutely. I like, oh, I got a lot of work to do with you, bro. <laughs> right? And I'm just going through the scriptures, and I'm like, what about this verse? What about that? What about this? What about that? And, and then he hit me with, 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 a, with, a, with a DZ. I was like, he was like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, we don't have to listen to the Bible. The Bible is not permanent. I was like, what? I say, I said, let me, 
Let me close this up. This is irrelevant. <laughs> I'm not going nowhere with this guy. <laughs> but listen, the question becomes, I don't want to leave you hanging on this. Because Paul is trying to get us to see you can't measure your relationship with God based on keeping law, the law, keeping rules. Okay. Because God is holy. He requires 100% holiness. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to bring this, this series back to this because this is how this, our whole conversation started. Well, Pastor, you know, I, you know, I fail and, and I don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm really growing, if I'm really close to God, how can God really accept me because of X, Y, Z? Okay. And so my, 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 my point is, if, if X, Y, Z is enough to get God to throw you away, <laughs> he would have been through you away. There's no, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get in. You're not going to get in. <laughs> If, you, if you're basing it off of your actions, you're not going to get in. He demands 100% holiness all the time from the moment you took your first breath. Not from the moment you got saved. Not from the moment, I'm going to get serious about the Lord. From the moment you took your first breath, he required perfect obedience. No one can give that but Jesus. So the law cannot be our standard for how to have a good relationship with God. So the question becomes, well, how can we? How can we have a good relationship with God? What can be the basis or foundation of our relationship with God? And Paul gives that to us in verse 20, a verse that probably all of us memorized and learned as a kid. I know I had to learn, um, I learned this, um, this scripture as a kid, and, and we never connected it to this context of why Paul was giving us this verse. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Why does Paul stick this verse after a conversation of Christians not following the law? And I believe, and we'll, I'll, I'll expand on this um, next week, that the foundation of our relationship with God cannot be our own good works. It cannot be the law. We have to find another basis in order to be justified. Now, many people, especially people who are reformed, uh, they put that basis in, in justification. That God declares us righteous. He takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on our account because he took our sin and put it on Jesus. He then takes Jesus' righteousness and put it on us. And I think that justification is, as uh, Martin Luther would say, it is the article by which the church stands or falls. I agree with that. But I think that there's something even deeper than justification. And I know all my Reformed friends that would hear me say that were like, <gasps> But I think that even justification is the fruit of something else. And I think that is our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. 
I have been crucified with Christ. How did I die to the law? If the, if the wages of sin is death, how is it that I have eternal life? It's because by faith, when you put your trust in Jesus, God united you to Jesus so that his death was considered your death. His burial is considered your burial. His resurrection is considered your resurrection. And his new perfect life is considered your life. Your union with Jesus exempts you from all of God's wrath because God looked at his son and because Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ, in Christ, I think he uses the phrase some 90 times, because you are in Christ, you were in him when he died on the cross, so everything that's true of him is true of you. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6, He died once so that now he can live a new kind of life. That's also true of you. He's not subject to the law anymore. The new kind of life enables him to live in a way that he can please God and still not be subject to the law. And that is true of you as well. Now, when we get to Romans chapter, I mean, mean, uh, Galatians chapter five, we'll see that that's the Holy Spirit. If you live in the spirit, you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He gives you the fruit of the spirit. And after giving all of the fruit of the spirit, he says, against such, there is no law. <laughs> well, what about I don't drink, I don't smoke. You ain't got to worry about all of that. Live in the spirit. <laughs> walk in the spirit. And when you go to the, ah, don't do that. Okay, can't do that. <laughs> I need you to go do that. I don't want to do that. Do that. Okay, I got to go do this. I don't have no Bible verses to say. I got to give money to that man standing on the corner when he be looking at me at the red light. <laughs> but I just feel something nudging me to give it to him. And, but I ain't give it to him. You just committed a sin. I ain't no Bible verses against that. The Holy Spirit... <laughs> was compelling. There's no law against such. There is no law. There's no law, but when the Holy Spirit says do something and you don't do it, that's that's a sin. We're not living according to a bunch of rules. I don't I didn't find a, a Bible verse that said I need to go apologize to my wife for yelling at her, but I just couldn't sleep last night, and I just kept thinking about it. That was the Holy Spirit saying, get up, dummy, (laughs) and apologize to your wife. (laughs) No, don't say amen too loud now, right? (laughs) Against such there is no law. The Holy Spirit will lead you and he will convict you when he wants you not to do something. And he will keep nudging you and annoying you to make sure you go do what he wants you to do. And you and you may not even have a Bible verse. I don't know. I can't find nothing in the Bible, but I just feel the Lord wants me to do this. 
And I can't find no Bible verses that say this is a sin, but I, I just can't do, I just can't do it. I just can't. See, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans in chapter 14 and, and 15, 16. He talks about the Christian liberty when he says that if you're a Christian, for example, look at this example, two people, one person, both of them are Christian. One says, I feel drinking is a sin. I, I just can't drink. And the other person has Christian freedom. Right? For one of us, it is a sin. Because if my conscience convicts me and says, I can't do this, I can't do that. The problem is we were like, well, I can't do it. You can't do it either. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. Christian liberty, I, I don't have any. There's no b- verses that says, don't do this. So I can express Christian liberty because if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict me and stop me, then I have freedom in this area because it's not specifically a sin then it's an area of Christian liberty. Now, Paul says the only way your Christian liberty does become a sin is if, if the brother who thinks it is a sin, you do it in front of him, and he gets offended, now it's a sin. So you might want to go, go home and, <laughs> you know, go home and exercise your Christian liberty. <laughs> but we live in the spirit now. Remember, Paul starts this whole passage off talking about the present evil age versus the age of the spirit, the age to come. And he says, we as Christians, we're living in between these two ages now. The law is a part of the present evil age. It is something that God used to train us and put us in check. But as we'll see as we go through Galatians, but when Christ came, we're no longer under the law. Because we're supposed to be mature in Christ to be able to know how to live, even though we don't have chapter and verse. We live according to the Spirit. Now, I, I'm, I'm going through this. You can close up. I'm finished. We'll come back to uh, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 uh, next week. And I, I want to focus just on uh, our union with Christ and what the Bible says about our, our union with Christ. But what I want us to, what I want us to keep coming back to here is everything in our relationship centers on God's grace. Everything. Everything. God did not save you because you were good enough. He did not save you because you were good enough. He saved you because you were not good enough. (laughs) So now we're saved, right? And we're struggling because, man, I'm not good enough. I got to do, all right, I got to, Pastor said, we got to do this Bible reading plan. And I'm like, back in like January the 15th, and it's like March the 1st. I can never keep up. I'm just not a good Christian. How can I, how can I really get to heaven if I can't even read the Bible every day? <laughs> I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like praying. And, and, and so we start to beat ourselves up because we feel I'm not good enough 
for God. Now, I'll, let me, I'm going to say it. I offended someone. They stopped coming to the church. I'm going to say it again anyway. Now, here it is. You aren't good enough. Like, oh, what? Oh, what? You can't, what do you mean I ain't good enough? I ain't, I'm not good enough. You shouldn't be telling people they ain't good enough. You should be trying to encourage people and build each other up. I am. You ain't good enough. That's encouraging. <laughs> that is encouraging. Because it takes you off the hook of always pursuing competence. I'm like, why you got why you got four master's degrees? Oh, because I just got to keep working hard enough to. Who are you trying to be competent enough for? Why, why are you constantly working? I just got to keep doing, I got to keep doing this. And so we keep working to try to prove ourselves, and then we bring that idea right over to God, and we just keep working. So we, we come to church, and, and we on like five different ministries. And like, you want to go home and clean your house? You can't, you, you. You, you can't clean the house because you're in church every day. I, you on five ministries. You ain't affected of none of these things. But, you just, but I just got to keep working for God to make God happy. And somebody need to say, can you sit down? You, God didn't pick you because you were good enough. And the truth is, you will never be good enough. Okay, now I don't know why some people hear that, and you know it must it must hit their low self esteem, and they be like, oh, I can't come to that church. I need churches that's going to encourage me and build me up. Okay, so hey, have fun. You know, let them go. You are, you are beautiful. You are strong. <laughs> go ahead and do it. Say your affirmations and do all of that stuff. But the truth is, the reason that you have to keep saying those things is because you know it's not true. And you're trying to convince yourself that you are beautiful and strong and, and all that good stuff. But you know it's not true. Not the beautiful part. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> you know we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not my point. But, but we say these affirmations to try to trick ourselves into feeling that we are more than what we are, instead of just saying, God loves me the way I am. I'm beautiful the way he made me. I, he gave me, I don't have to be Albert Einstein. I could just be Larry. <laughs> All right, just, just slow, just slow but consistent. <laughs> All right, why'd you pick us? I loved you because I loved you. And that's it. And because he loves us, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, try to do good works and different things like that. All I'm trying to get us to see is that our good works and our bad works will never make God love us any more, nor will it make us him love us any less. He loves you because you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, he loves you the same way he loves Jesus, and he will never, ever change in his love for Jesus, so he will never, ever change in his love for us. 
Our union with Christ is the foundation of every single thing in our relationship with God. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us because we are in Christ. And what we have to learn how to do is rest on our union with Christ. Because truly, as Paul says, he is so intimately tied to us, it is as if we aren't even living. He's living his life through us. So we live by faith in him as he lives his life through us. And over time, right, to address the issues of the Judaizers, what about Christians who sin? As the Holy Spirit works out the life of Christ in us, he knows how to strip all of those things out. Because if we live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I'm, I'm closing here, but again, I'm going to keep driving <laughs> this, this idea home. I, I know there are people in this room that are struggling <laughs> with this, but there is nothing in your past, in your life, in your last night before you came to church, whatever. <laughs> there, there, there's nothing in your life that he did not know about. He knew all of those things before he even made you. And he chose you anyway. And he justified you. He declared you righteous because of your faith in Christ. You cannot add works of the law to your faith in Christ in order to please God. The only way you please God is living by faith. And we'll, we'll continue uh, working our way through these ideas in, um, in Galatians. Again, we will uh, talk, you know, we'll be in Bible study um, uh, each Wednesday night, and we'll be able to ask questions and um, of these things. Because I know that these are difficult concepts. People have a lot of questions. I know we won't get a whole lot of questions. Oh, so you saying, Pastor, that um, now that I'm saved, I ain't got to come to church no more? <laughs> right. Or as we in our our class yesterday, <laughs> can I be a disciple without being disciplined? <laughs> right. That took us like two hours to get through. I was like, Lord, we gotta watch these questions <laughs> in cell group, right? <laughs> but um, the answer is, yeah, you still gotta come to church. You mean I gotta? Love my enemies? Oh, yeah, you got to love your enemies. I'm not saying that we there, there's not commands to obey. What I'm saying is that your obedience or disobedience d never shakes the foundation of your relationship with God. It's kind of like me. I grew up, oh, I needed a spanking every week. I was like, oh, they ain't spanked me last week. They must not love me no more. <laughs> so I got to do something to get a spanking. <laughs> and God is, is, has given me uh, one child that is, he's like, oh, I'm going to show you what you did to your parents. Oh, I say, I got to call and ask for forgiveness. 
But the truth is, no matter how much my child bothers me, I'm a Hebrews chapter 12, he spanks every child that he loves, but you're still a child. You're still his child. He will spank you, discipline you, you know, go ahead, have fun, live in sin, use your freedom to sin. He know where you're going to be next week on Saturday night. He's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. Time has no boundaries to him. He, he's going to meet you where you're going to be, and he's going to make sure he gets you right back on path. You know? He know, how to, he know how, how to get Christians to stop living in sin. He knows how to do it. But it doesn't shake the foundation of your relationship. You are secure in Christ. And we have to let our conscience be settled with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us an opportunity on this communion Sunday to be able to come and reflect on what you did for us in your son. We thank you, God, that you loved us so much, as, as John says, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. You loved us so much that even though we were your enemies, even though we were in sin, even though we would turn our backs on you, you sent your son to die for us so that we could be rightly related to you. And you also knew that even after uh, we put our trust in Christ, we would still fall short of your glory and still sin and, and still not walk in the spirit and be led by your spirit. And you still picked us. You still saved us. You still pursue us and chase us every single morning and let us know that we are loved. You still bear witness with our spirit that we are your sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to settle in our conscience and in our minds and in our memories what we know to be true spiritually, that we are accepted in Christ. Lord, I pray that for those of us uh, who have sensitive consciences and our consciences uh, convict us and condemn us and, and the, the accuser of the brethren, uh, he comes and, and, uh, and, and he accuses us of the things that we've done in our past and those memories and all of those things come back to us and, and we start to be shaky in our walk with you. I pray that you would bring to our conscience and our remembrance all of these things, that you love us because you love us. And that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I pray that you will help us as Paul diligently worked throughout the book of Ephesians to help us to see that we are rooted and grounded in your love. And I pray for every single person in this place that they will be able to experience the length and the depth and the height of your love. They will be able to to know so much that you love us that we can sense and feel your love all around us, Lord. 
pray that you would help us to all grow to full maturity in Christ. Help us to not rely on the law and rules for our relationship with you, but help us to walk in the spirit and live in the spirit because you, Holy Spirit, will guide us in what we need to do and you will stop us from doing what we don't need to do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be so rock solid in our faith that nothing can shake us and that when people look at us, they will desire to have the same kind of rock solid relationship that we have. We thank you for all of these things now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.